So we've been in this uh, series, Proclaim, and we've got a couple more weeks here. Actually, three more weeks today included. And uh, the early church, we, we know, that proclaimed people are saved by grace alone. People are saved by grace alone. Uh, you know, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the uh, Wittenbo- Wittenberg door and set the world on fire, so to speak, I, I want to point out that he was not inventing something new. Let me say that twice. He was not inventing something new. And uh, point 62 says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. You know, it shocked people at that time who weren't aware of what the Bible actually was teaching or what it said. They didn't have it in their own language. Uh, People hadn't read the scriptures for themselves. They had relied solely on priests. And when the Bible is made available and people actually read it, which I hope you're doing, they usually find conviction. And they usually find freedom in the grace of God. Now some, like those people that said to Jesus, "This, this teaching is just too hard, they do walk away. We get that. But the grace of God is found on those pages. The Council of Jerusalem uh, is recorded in Acts chapter 15, where we see both a literal proclamation by the early church, but also a defense made to the council. So if you can turn with me to page 755 of your pew Bibles to Acts 15, 1 through 11, page 755 uh, in, in these Bibles, right? And uh, Acts 15, 1 through 11, and follow along as I read. It says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the, the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and require the, required to keep the law of Moses. So they were adding requirements to salvation, right? Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, God who knows the heart, shows that he'd accepted them by, by giving the, the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, who do you, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now, we've talked in past weeks about how both enculturation and tradition uh, have a very strong hold on human beings, right? That we don't easily change. Um, And this story is a clear example. These guys were Jews first and Christians second, right? Uh, They had been enculturated. They They had been steeped in tradition. 
and Judaic tradition had a very strong hold on these early believers. For the first hundred years, for a matter of fact, uh, People uh, just went to synagogue. So, so sometimes they mixed church and synagogue and, until finally, you know, those, those old traditions, those past traditions were worn away until they just attended church. Now, the law of God the, and the, all the purity rites that we see leading up to the Messiah's coming all foreshadowed the Messiah, all foreshadowed Jesus' coming. And the law, we admit, is the best way for human beings to live. But it's not something that we can achieve in our sinful state. It's not something that can earn us favor with God. The law led one to understand their need for salvation by grace through faith. But when it's been in your culture, it's, it's been your practice of culture, you don't really let go that easily. And, and oftentimes you, see, see, you, you try to mix things and you try to apply it to other people. And that's what these guys were doing. And that's what we call the gospel plus or the gospel and. It's an adding to the gospel, which makes it not the gospel anymore, right? So how people are saved is still a, an important question today as it was for them. And that's what they were wrestling with. From the writings of Paul and here in Acts 15, we see that certain Jewish believers were following Paul around and Paul's you know, sharing the gospel, people coming to Christ. And then after he would leave, they would go tell these new Gentile converts that they weren't fully saved unless they were circumcised and they began to follow the law of Moses which placed upon them this unnecessary requirement or these unnecessary requirements for uh, salvation. Paul even said in Galatians 2.14 to Peter, he said, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, right? So apparently Peter was acting in one way with the Gentiles, and then the Jews would show up, and he would change his tune. He would act a different way. So Paul and Barnabas disagreed with these false teachers and this false teaching, and he took their argument to the church leaders in Jerusalem. And they gather, and they debate this, this, this matter at length until Peter stands up in verses 1 through 7 and make this little speech. And what's clear is that there wasn't uniformity of thought on all matters in the early church. But the church had to come to a unified position of what the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus meant for humanity and for all believers. In other words, they were defining the faith. They were making sure that it was pure. Verse 9 points out that Gentiles had been purified by their, in their hearts by faith alone not by observance to the law. It's, it's not that the law was unimportant anymore, you know, that, that it, but just that it was impossible to attain salvation or even retain salvation in a, a, by observance to it in our fleshly state. We just could never live up to it. Which is why he states in verse 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, period. Now, the law of God is still our moral metric. It is still our impetus to find salvation by grace through faith in Christ. 
And in, in that, that moment of salvation, we find the gratitude that grace affords us to pursue a life that is reflective of God's moral law. But we just cannot earn salvation by it. We attain no favor before, before God or no merit before God by observance of the law. Now, contrary to, to today's rhetoric, unity, listen to this, unity is found in shared belief not in the toleration of various beliefs. Amen. Unity is found in shared belief, not in toleration of various beliefs. We're, we're not just a social club, in other words, right? Um, we, we, we don't gather here on Sunday mornings because we're just the only people in this community that like to sing. And maybe the guy... Uh, speaking has a few good things to say, but we could take it or leave it. That's not why we gather here. We gather rather under the banner of Christ. It's It's a holy endeavor that we do. When the writers of the New Testament wrote about sharing the gospel, they say the faith because the faith encompasses all the shared beliefs of who God is as found in Christ and in Scripture. It is not the 20th century or Kierkegaardian sort of concept of faith as a leap in the dark. Faith also is not just some magical power which emanates from within me. I, didn't, I don't conjure it. It's not, it was never part of me. It was given to me. It's not a leap in the dark. It comes from outside. It is a gift of God. It is revealed by God, right? The shared truth of the gospel that we all agree upon as Christians. Believing, in other words, the solid promises of God as found in the scriptures. I've tried very hard over the years to expunge from my sermons any feeling language. In other words, if I'm tempted to write a sermon and in it I say I feel or I think, then I may not be speaking out of true conviction of what the scriptures actually teach. Think about that. I don't feel or think. I shouldn't be saying that when I'm up here. What I say up here shouldn't be Jason's opinion. It shouldn't be anybody else's opinion for that matter. It should be straight from Scripture, right? And and it's why teachers are held to a greater accountability. I'm going to be judged a little bit stronger, more strongly than you are, right? One person left our church once, given that they had family members of a different religion, that were watching my sermons online or listening to my sermons online, and they didn't like the exclusive claims of Christ in my preaching, that Christ is the only way to salvation, right? Problem is that I only reiterate in sermon what God reveals in Scripture, hopefully. Not that I'm not without mistake. Rarely so. I I may be wrong, but I'm never mistaken. Anyway, but... um, But that person really wanted me to speak of love and mercy and of grace, those nice, beautiful concepts, and they are beautiful concepts, but not the exclusive claims of Christ, nor did they want me to mention sin, which I couldn't do. I can't do as a pastor. It's the whole gospel, or it's not any gospel at all. It is pure. We can't mix it with anything. We can't detract from it. It has to be pure. You wouldn't drink a glass of water if somebody sneezed in it, right? Even though the percentage of sneeze to water is vastly different. You wouldn't drink a Coke without the main ingredient of Coca-Cola in it and still call it a Coke, right? 
It's unpopular to say, but the church of Christ, in the church of Christ, there is right and wrong belief. There is absolute truth. It's not my truth versus your truth. You know, it's, it's God's truth that we should be pursuing. Jesus is inclusive and invitational of all people in the world. But Jesus is exclusive in the truth of how we found, find salvation, how we come to salvation, and how we walk in him. In Christ, we confess shared biblical truth. That is the Christian worldview. That's what we've been talking about for a few weeks here. Jesus said, as I've brought up for a number of weeks, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, right? You've heard me say it before, but God doesn't have multiple personality disorder. He he communicates himself in only the way that he can. You can only communicate yourself in only the way that you can. True to who he is as he's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures that he's given to us. Think of it this way. If I came to, my, came to you and I introduced myself explaining who I am and I wanted you to follow me on this journey which ended in the, at this great, wonderful mansion that had everything you ever needed for life, for eternity, and that I only know the way there and I only have the keys to the front door and you see me, and you, I explain my history and my likes, my dislikes, and you, you hear and see the things of my character and all that stuff. You know me as a person, right? Then somebody else walks up, and they stand next to me, and they claim also to be me. And you, you can see them, and they explain different likes, different dislikes, and all that stuff, different history, different person, all that stuff. It's clearly, clearly they are a different person. It would not be arrogant of me to say at that point, or wrong of me to say at that point, wait a minute, that is not me. Don't follow that guy. He'll not get you to where you need to go, and he doesn't have the keys to the mansion anyway, even if he could get there. That would just be a truth statement. If you followed the other guy, you wouldn't be following Jason. You would be following a facsimile thereof, right? Walking a different path, not leading to where Jason is going. Likewise, if somebody else standing there said, ah, you can follow either one, they'll get you to the same place. There are many paths to the mansion. That would also be wrong. There's not. There's only one. And that's what that one person wanted me to do. They wanted me to validate a false religion which does not lead to Jesus, rather it leads away from Christ. The God of the universe has communicated himself to humanity through the Judeo-Christian history. The same God from beginning to end, one God for all peoples. All peoples need to hear his message and and, and won't find him by any other path, which is why he's given us this ministry of reconciliation, which we find is outlined in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is the all-exclusive, but yet also all-inclusive, invitational message of the gospel to follow the one true God in Christ, the only one who has the keys to the kingdom and knows the way there. 
This is why the Shema of Israel found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 has always been so central and important. It's, it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Emphasizing the unique character of God, the unique personhood of God, the, the oneness of God, only one God. All others are false. Just a truth statement. We may not like the messenger sometimes. We may not like how it's communicated sometimes. But it does not detract from the fact that it is still true. Verses 6 through 9 discuss how important it is to teach this to ourselves and to others day in and day out. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So at every exit point or entry point, be reminded of who the true, one true God is. Put, press them into your children. Teach them to them. Keep this before them. When you wake up, between the time you wake up and you go to bed at night, be about this. Remember this. With everybody that you love and come in contact with, share this. They would tie the word on their arm because they felt like that was a, a direct uh, link to your heart. They would tie it on their foreheads because it's the, a direct link to your mind, your thoughts. It was, it was a physical symbol of what they were trying to do in their hearts and minds. So in every aspect, in every moment of life, with everyone around you, remember and impress the oneness of the true God in Christ. No compromise, no matter the cost. So... Peter stands and he begins to speak to those assembled there, making the point that he had made back in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius that God doesn't make any distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Peter asks, why are we requiring them to do something that we ourselves recognize is impossible? For we know that we are saved by the grace of God. That's it. And although their official unity is not fully established at this point, this message of Peter is directly in line with what Paul proclaimed uh, to the, in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, that we are saved by grace in God, uh, the grace of God in Christ alone. In line with the five solas, or soli, if you want to say it in plural, that uh, outlined in Martin Luther's teaching. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. It's what separated us from the Roman Catholic Church. All five central to the evangelical faith, not only capturing the gospel of Jesus Christ and explaining how that gospel takes root in the sinner's heart, but also defining where the authority of the gospel resides and to what end the gospel is preached and proclaimed. These five solas uh, distinguished the reformers from the teachings of Rome. And at the heart of this divide wasn't merely a theological dispute or debate, but it was a re-celebration of the gospel itself. It was getting back to what the gospel really was. And so the reformers were willing to lay down their lives for these solas, first and foremost, because the gospel itself was at stake. Somebody had sneezed in the glass, so to speak. 
So sola scriptura, right? It's the belief that only Scripture, because God's inspired Word, is our inerrant and sufficient and final authority for the church. Word, you know, God's Word alone. The basis is Scripture's inspired nature. Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And that can't be said of church tradition or of councils or of leaders, as important as all those things are. While Scripture has many authors, many human writers, it has one divine author, and we have to remember that. The Holy Spirit, Peter tells us, carried along the biblical authors so that what they said, God himself said, down to the very words. And I believe that wholeheartedly. For that, that reason, Scripture is also inerrant, and inerrancy follows inspiration. Inerrancy means Scripture is true. It is without error in all that it asserts. And we have to remember this. As the Holy Spirit carried along the biblical authors, he ensured the human words reflected God's holy character. Hence, Scripture is truth because God himself is truth. It is God's word to us. Inerrancy is essential not only because it provides warrant for our assurance in all of this, giving us every reason to believe Scripture is trustworthy, but also it distinguishes Scripture from all other fallible authorities. Scripture alone is our infallible, inerrant authority in life, our only sufficient authority. Paul says Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or as the Belgic Confession says, we believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. The church has worked this out really well over the centuries. And that teaches us that all other authorities in the Christian life serve underneath Scripture, below Scripture. Scripture alone rules over all other authorities. It it alone is God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word. Which brings us now to solus Christus, right? Scripture as final authority is a gift from God because Scripture, in Scripture, we are given Jesus Christ. God would have been perfectly, and you may not realize this, but he would have been perfectly just and perfectly holy to you know, leave us in our sin, leave us in our condemnation, just to let us go away. But he stooped low to speak a saving word to lost sinners, reaching its pinnacle in the living word, which is Jesus Christ. Now our temptation, as it was then, is to think that there's something within ourselves, like these guys thought, even in the slightest degree, which can contribute to my redemption or our redemption. The gospel plus, the gospel and, adding to the gospel. Like obedience to the law, or some, some spiritual rite of passage, or good works, which actually spring from faith itself. But scripture counters, none is righteous, Not one. No, not one, right? None is righteous. No, not one. I'm going to tell you how bad you are, right? It's it's great to embrace that truth. 
Because God and God alone saves and God and God alone sustains us in our salvation. The Father's done just that by sending his Son to become flesh, to represent us, substituting himself on our behalf. Whereas we failed to keep the law, Christ obeyed the law for us. Whereas we deserve the penalty for breaking the law, Christ died for us. Christ fulfilled the law that we could not keep, and he bore the wrath of God we deserve in full. Jesus paid it all. We say that a lot, but do we really understand it? The work of Christ alone is the basis by which we are all justified in God's sight, which brings us to sola fide, right? The believer receives redemption. The the redemption Christ has accomplished through faith and faith alone. Rather than trusting in ourselves, we trust in Jesus for our salvation and we trust in Jesus for our continued walk in him as well. The reformers used to like to talk about the great and marvelous exchange where Christ has taken our sin and its penalty on the cross and we receive in exchange the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ. Not only forgiven, and our debt paid in full, but we are imputed to our, what's been imputed to our account is Christ's perfect record of obedience to the law. You remember my book illustration for the past few weeks. Now this doesn't give us the freedom to live as we want. That's not it. But in it, in the gratitude of salvation, it creates this atmosphere where we can make mistakes. We can stumble. But we proceed with gratitude to glorify God by pursuing his wonderful moral law. As Francis Schaeffer said, we do not not come to the true Christian life merely by keeping a list of things we don't do or things that we should do, like the law. But neither do we come to it merely by rejecting the list and then shrugging our shoulders and living a looser life. That's not the mature Christian walk. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created in Christ for good works, but it never, not once, ever suggests that we attain salvation or that we retain our salvation by them. God declares us right in him, with him not on the basis of something within us at all, but only on the basis of righteousness from outside of ourselves, the righteousness of Christ. Faith is the instrument through which we receive the outside righteousness. That's a truth. Through faith in Christ, the blessed sort of status in Christ, which God alone can give, is reckoned to us. It's laid upon us. Hence, Paul warns Christians, no one will be justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in Christ, Galatians chapter 2. Which brings us to sola gratia. If the work of Christ is the basis for our right standing before God, and if we are justified by God, not on the basis of works, but only through faith in the works of Jesus, then it follows that our salvation is by grace and by grace alone, not limited to our justification and spanning all of salvation from start to finish. We live under grace. And the grace which saves is actually truly amazing, like the song says, amazing grace, because it does not originate within us at all. 
but it stems from God's mercy throughout eternity. As Paul says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So you might sit there and think to yourself, well, surely my will, my choices, my responses must be the determining factor in me getting saved well, not a, or even retaining my salvation, but not according to Paul. God's election depends not on human will or exertion, but, but on God who has mercy, Romans chapter 9, verse 16. His choice isn't conditioned on us because that would give us reason to boast, right? Rather, his electing grace is unconditional. And if grace is, is, in eternity is so free, then so too must grace be unconditional when applied by the Holy Spirit. So the God who has chosen us by grace alone is the one who alone can call us out of darkness and into the light of his own son. That is our effectual calling, John chapter 6. And he can also, he can raise us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's our regeneration, John chapter 3. That means being born, born again, which Satan has twisted to mean a negative thing in our culture. But Scripture teaches you must be born again in Christ, and I hope you have been. And if you haven't, and something's striking you today, I want to talk to you about that. His grace isn't dependent on our cooperation. I didn't set out my life saying, I'm going to, you know, follow God. No, God woke me up. If it depends on our will for its success, it's not really grace. He alone works to bring dead, lifeless sinners to new life in his son. He alone can grant us the faith which believes and works such belief within us to embrace Christ as our Savior and Lord. Then we, that all brings us to soli, soli Deo Gloria, right? By the, or for, the, for the glory of God alone. Only if our salvation is by grace alone will God alone receive all the glory. Very important point. If there's something of, of our own that we can claim in this process of, of, of finding salvation, then we've no, we, we no longer can boast in Christ alone. But if he's the author and the finisher of our faith from beginning to end, the author and finisher of our salvation, then he alone is magnified for his sovereign grace. These solas should cultivate an attitude of humility in us whether it's in, in, in our secular vocation, wherever we work, or school, or what have you, or sitting here worshiping on a Sunday morning, to God alone be the glory for my life. And this is why our statement of faith at 6-8 says that you cannot lose your salvation. Once a Christian, always a Christian, because if we could lose our salvation, then it means we had something to contribute to it. But we don't at all. It's all by God and to his glory alone. God's grace is unmerited favor, kindness, undeserved and unearned. In Christ, we get what we do not deserve, or we, get what we don't get what we do deserve, and that is our death, and we get what we don't deserve, and that is everlasting life with God again. The children's story 
Eric, uh, Eric says sorry has a good little illustration of grace. Eric has broken his, father, or his neighbor's flower pot and his, he confesses to his father. And his father takes him to the store to buy a new flower pot and Eric takes out his money, but he just doesn't have enough. So his father says, don't worry, I've paid for all of it. And Eric says, I don't deserve that. And he says, no, you're right, you don't. (laughs) You don't deserve it at all, but no one's perfect. And I want you to learn this lesson and I want you never to forget it. This is grace and grace is epic. He was practicing Deuteronomy chapter six. He was keeping before his son the principles of what we have in God. We cannot keep the rules the law of Moses lays out, although they are still our moral metric. We will never measure up. Peter acknowledges this. God's people hadn't been able to bear that yoke of the law. Remember, Christ answered people's question in John chapter 6 when when they asked, what must we do to do the works of God? What must we do to do the works of God? And his answer was simply this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to put everything in Christ, because Christ has done all the work for us. So why test God by making others do what God's people can't do? Every day we wake up, we have a choice. We can try to earn God's favor and approval by being as good as we can. Or we could respond to his love and his grace knowing that when we fail, he still loves us and his grace still covers us. The gospel isn't just relevant to the day that we are saved, the day that I first met Jesus, right? But it is relevant every day afterwards. We need to continually preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out and preach the gospel to others around us. To do that, we need to know it. We really do need to know it. We need to surround ourselves with the things that God has made available to us, and that is time in the Word, that is worship together, that is fellowship together, and that is prayer together, right? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. That is what Peter proclaimed that day, a proclamation that has reverberated all throughout history ever since. Sometimes it gets perverted, and we need to seek its purity. And and it is also the message that we're called to bring all peoples uh, to understanding in. So we're called to preach this gospel of Christ, as it tells us in Matthew, 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now, I don't know if you know, we have these Bibles on the side. We can order more if we have to. But if you want to know how to share the simple gospel, this has color-coded little tabs that you can do it with. We also have these little cards in the back of the room there next to that black box. And they have those verses that are color-coded in that Bible with it. Take it, start to think about this, start to, start to realize that, that, that it's important. Because right now, the gospel of Christ in the American church has been watered down, it's been mixed, it is not pure anymore. But we need to be that. And if Paul was standing here today, he would say the same thing. If Peter was standing here today, he would say the same thing. 
Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have gone to such great extents to communicate yourself, communicate the way of salvation to us, to communicate what it means to live and to walk and to move about in you to us. We praise you that you have done all that, but we also ask for your forgiveness that we have not thought, thought fully about it. That sometimes we walk along for 10, 20, 30 years or more just living the, the sort of cultural Christian life, but not really getting down to the nitty-gritty of what grace really means to us in the gospel of Christ. Not really understanding what you did in history and what you are doing in history and not being participant in walking it out with you now. You have woken us up. Those of us that have found you, that have been woken up by you, we are in you and we know that and we can't lose that, but we don't want to just skate until you come back. We want to live a life that glorifies your name by walking this out well. So teach us and move us in that way. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.